Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. After a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. He said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat, and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight, that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's son house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, where he was lying down. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat, and Anmud said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Anmud said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them to the chamber to Anmud, her brother. But when she brought them near to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Anmon hated her with a very great hatred so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Anmon said to her, Get up, go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this is wrong in sending me away, that is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amon, my brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. This is the word of the Lord. 
I don't need to tell you, having heard that, that this is a heavy chapter. I'd suggest that uh, if you're watching this at home and you have children around, uh, we're going to be dealing with heavy topics here, so it might be better for you to watch this on your own. But uh, for all of us, we need God's help as we think about this, so let's join together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear, hearts to understand, that we would see things through your eyes, that we would hear words of comfort, words of confrontation, whatever it is that we need to hear as we look at this passage today. No matter where we are in our journey of faith, that this would be a significant time as we know that the living God of this universe speaks to us, speaks to us through this written word. Come, Lord Jesus, come, Holy Spirit, and help us, we pray. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. In her uh, 2019 uh, book, What is a Girl Worth?, Rachel Hollander uh, tells the story of her sexual assault at the hands of Larry Nassar, the former USA gymnastics team doctor, and the grueling process required to bring him to trial. That trial would make international headlines at which Den Hollander bravely gave testimony to Nassar's assaults that began when she was 15 years old. In the end, Larry Nassar faced 332 accusers of all ages, including Olympic superstars, and he was sent to prison for life. What's of additional note is that it was 16 years after the initial sexual abuse started that Den Hollander filed uh, her complaint with the Michigan State University. And in recounting her story, Den Hollander explained why it took her so long to tell her story. First, she said, it's incredibly difficult for sexual abuse survivors to speak up and to be believed. And secondly, it's incredibly difficult for listeners to really hear and believe. As you may know, Den Hollander is a committed Christian. She testified boldly to her faith during Nassar's trial. And as such, Den Hollander has also been, therefore, extremely well-placed to expose the failure of the church when it comes to addressing sexual abuse. Den Hollander's experience of traumatic abuse did not start with Larry Nassar. At the age of seven, she was the victim of sexual abuse in her home church in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And her verdict on the church at large is damning. The church, she says, has been quick to doubt the claims of victims, to get self-defensive about claims rather than to address them. In an interview soon after her book came out, Den Hollander said this, one of the areas where Christians don't do well is in acknowledging the devastation of the wound. We can tend to gloss over the devastation of any kind of suffering, but especially sexual assault with Christian platitudes like God works all things together for good or God is sovereign. Those are very good and glorious biblical truths, but when they are misapplied in a way to dampen the horror of evil, they ultimately dampen the goodness of God. Goodness and darkness exist as opposites. If we pretend that the darkness isn't dark, it dampens the beauty of the light. 2 Samuel 13 is one of the darkest chapters in the entire Bible. It's a tempting chapter to skip over for any preacher, I could tell you. It's a hard place to go for any reader. And I want to acknowledge up front, it's a possible trigger for any of us whose story includes abuse. 
And the statistics would suggest that there are at least a few of us here who carry the burden of such a story. Diane Landsberg is a, a world-renowned psychologist based in Philadelphia whose clinical expertise includes 35 years of working with trauma survivors and clergy. Uh, she's spoken to our presbytery on Friday. I heard her give a presentation uh, online through the Trinity Forum. And in that presentation, Landsberg stated that one in four women and one in six men have been abused by the age of 18. So I suspect that includes some of us this morning. Such we do well to consider this difficult passage today, a passage that we'll think about in three parts. Firstly, the violation. Secondly, the village. And thirdly, the victorious victim. So first, the violation. Follow along on the screen or in your pew Bibles, if you wish. Uh, verses 1 and 2 again. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her, and Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of her, his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her, or better translated, about her. This opening verse is a bit like one of those movie posters with the woman standing in the middle, and she's got the two men in her life that she has to deal with on either side. On one side is, of Tamar is the one described as David's son Absalom, on the other side, the one described as David's son, Amnon. The fact that both men are described in relation to David is a reminder that this chapter is essentially the continuation of the story of David. And specifically, it's going to give us a vivid, tragic example of the prophet Nathan's decree that we saw last week, that the consequence of the sins of the father will fall on his family. The David's sexual sin and his com commitment of murder will end up passing on to the next generation in their behavior. Absalom won't be mentioned again until later in the story, but right away we're told that Amnon, David's eldest son, loved Absalom's beautiful sister, Tamar. Now we need to clarify a couple of things uh, right off the bat here before we get further into the story. First of all, the family relationship of Amnon to Tamar. This story is difficult enough that we don't need to be making it more complicated than it is, as I would suggest some commentators do. That is to say, I don't think that we're dealing here with incest as well as with rape. And I'll tell you why. Old Testament Hebrew does not nuance language to clarify whether siblings are full siblings or half-siblings, or step-siblings, the only way to clarify such relationships was by articulating if siblings shared both parents, or one parent, or no parents. And the narrator seems quite particular here, that while he calls Absalom David's son, and Amnon David's son, he does not refer to Tamar as David's daughter. In fact, nowhere in the Bible is Tamar referred to specifically as the daughter of David, or is David referred to as the father of Tamar? It's true that in verse 18, Tamar's robe is described as the kind of robe worn by the king's daughters. I take that to mean that she is part of the royal household. But even outside of this account, Tamar is described consistently with sibling language rather than daughter language. 
you've been wading through 1 Corinthians in the daily prayer project readings, God bless you. And maybe you remember that back in chapter 3, verse 9 of 1 Chronicles, after listing off all of David's sons, the writer states this, all these were David's sons besides the sons of the concubines, and Tamar was their sister. So that while Tamar was Absalom's full sister, because they both had the same mother, there's no indication that they had the same father, that is David. And so Amnon would have been her stepbrother who shared no common parentage. Sorry if that's getting a bit confusing, but it'll have relevance in a few moments. Now, the other clarification I want to make might result in a little bit more pushback, and that is that I want to suggest that the narrator here intends for us to understand that while things turn absolutely horrific in this relationship, to begin with, Amnon really did love Tamar. The word here used for love in verse 1 appears 217 times in the Old Testament. I didn't count them myself, but I take it on the authority that I looked at it's true. But guess what? Every time it means love. Sometimes what is loved is frowned upon in the sense of it's idolatrous, but even there, the word still means love. And while the overwhelming number of translations keep it as love, a number of the commentators want to reinterpret this word right up front as lust. The problem with that is that Hebrew has a very rich vocabulary for lust. It has four different verbs, in fact, and none of those words are used here in verse 1. Word choice here, I think, strongly leads us to understand that Amnon really did fall in love with Tamar. In verse 2, he's so smitten by Tamar that he made himself ill. However, as the story continues, it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything about this love because we're told Tamar was a virgin. The word translated virgin there also could mean an unattached young woman. It's possible that Tamar was still a, a teenager or was perhaps under some sort of parental palace protection because of her age. But at this stage, Amnon's attitude appears honorable. And from Tamar's reaction to him, she sees his intentions as honorable as well. But all of that changes very, very quickly. Amnon explains his predicament to his advisor, uh, Jonadab, who we're told was a crafty individual. Jonadab is the consummate politician who knows how to get things done. He tells Amnon to feign sickness, to ask for Tamar to visit and bake some cakes, literally some little heart cakes. Jonadab works the angles. He maneuvers David into the middle of things, knowing that if David asks Tamar to visit Amnon, she won't be suspicious about the request. David sends the request to Tamar. She goes to Amnon's house where she finds him lying down. She bakes these little cakes. She brings them over to Amnon, but he refuses to eat. Instead, he sends everyone out of the house except Tamar, and he asks her to bring the cakes to his bedroom. We pick up the story in verse 11. But when she brought them near to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. Tamar here shows a better understanding of God's law than many modern commentators because many commentators suggest that Tamar's suggestion that Amnon speak to the king is sort of her last-ditch effort to say anything 
that might stop him from doing what he's about to do, even if it's requesting from the king permission for an incestuous marriage. But you see, Tamar knows that a marriage to Amnon would not be forbidden by God's law because marriage between a brother and a stepsister who shares no common parentage was not prohibited. So when she tells Amnon not to do this outrageous thing, it's rape that is the outrageous thing. Deuteronomy 22 essentially equates rape with murder. That's how outrageous it is. Tamar protests with numerous attempts to reason with Amnon, many attempts where one should have sufficed, simply the word don't. But Tamar's protests fall on deaf ears, and so we read in verse 14, but he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. That's a bit sanitized. More literally, he raped her and laid her, making absolutely clear there was nothing consensual about what happened here. What happens next conforms to a familiar pattern in sexual abuse. Verse 15, then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. Again, that verse doesn't really make much sense if Amnon, as I mentioned earlier, didn't actually love Tamar to begin with, but now his intense love has turned to intense hate. That's actually a pattern that we see earlier in Samuel. Saul loved David and then hated him. David's wife, Michal, loved David and then hated him. It's a pattern I'm sure some of us have witnessed in life, a relationship or even a marriage that was characterized initially by genuine love, but which then soured nastily over time into hatred. And Amnon follows that sordid pattern. And the narrator doesn't tell us the exact contours and stages of this love turning to hatred. However, if you're familiar with the experiments in the 1960s of the social psychologist Stanley Milgram, you'll know that there's evidence that love can turn to hate when you do something hateful. If you're not familiar with those experiments, Milgram at the time was a PhD student at Yale, his experiments involved a learner and a teacher. The teachers uh, were ordinary people like you and me. They were supposed to administer electric shocks to the learners when they answered a question incorrectly. Now, the teachers didn't know this, but the learners were actually paid actors. The electric shocks were fake. But when the learners received the so-called shock, they would cry and moan. But most of the teachers, rather than protest to the organizers against increasing the voltage after a wrong answer, would start disparaging the learner whom they had never met. They'd say things like, you know, what a stupid person. Why aren't they getting it? And then they'd turn the voltage dose of electricity up for each wrong answer that was given. They ended up hating the person they were acting hateful toward. And Amnon does the exact same thing here. He ends up intensely hating Tamar after acting so hatefully towards her. He tells her to get up and leave. He suddenly wants nothing to do with her. Look at verses 15 to 19. Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. 
And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore, and she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. Amnon now cannot even bring himself to refer to Tamar by her name. Throw this one out and bolt the door behind her. He now re-abuses Tamar by throwing her out of his world. And she, however, screams, no, you, you can't just send me away after what you've, what you've just done. And Tamar's protest sounds astounding to our modern ears. Why would she ever want to stay there? To have been raped was a terrible, terrible evil, but in Tamar's world, its aftermath was even worse. For the Tamars of today, we would seek out medics and therapists to try to help the person with the consequences of their experience, but the Tamar of 2 Samuel 13 knows that this was not just a physical assault to be recovered from or just an emotional trauma to be counseled through. From what she says here, she doesn't even seem to think in those terms. The devastating implications of her experience lay primarily in the area of her relationship with society. Tamar had been with a man. She therefore no longer belonged in the house of her upbringing. But the man who had put her into this position refuses to have her stay with him. And in Tamar's world, there was no such thing as a woman free to live alone, a woman who could live self-sufficiently and independently. But despite Tamar's protest, yet again, Amnon will not listen. She's thrown out of his house, still in the dress that would be worn by an unattached royal young woman who would one day be hoping to marry some eligible young man. But now that dress only indicated the kind of woman she used to be, Tamar tears it the way you tore your clothes when someone died because in her mind, someone had died. She smears her face with dirt the way you smeared your face with dirt when someone had died because in her mind, someone had died. She buries her head in her hands the way you do when you cannot face the world or life because Tamar now has been cast off, was now in mourning, desolate, desecrated. She walks away from Amnon's house, verse 19, crying out, a word that doesn't mean necessarily that she was weeping, although surely she was, but a word that means she's crying out at the wrong and the oppression and the violence, crying out for justice, justice in the face of a gruesome violation. That brings us secondly then to the village. The evangelist uh, Glenn Scrivener actually recently wrote a blog post on this passage, and he, he titled it with these words, when it comes to abuse, it takes a village. That's what inspired today's sermon title, and indeed, I, many of the insights I'm going to share with you I, I got from Scrivener's post. What, what happens here in 2 Samuel 13 did take a village. It didn't just take Amnon, it took an entire corrupt system to plot the evil, to perpetrate it, to silence the victim, to cover it up. None of this evil could have happened without other members of this dysfunctional kingdom. I've already mentioned Jonadab, Amnon's diabolical advisor. Jonadab's name means the Lord gives, but Jonadab reckoned the king's son should take whatever he wanted, like the forbidden taking of the fruit by Adam and Eve, like the forbidden taking by David of Bathsheba. Jonadab's advice would end up resulting in not only the rape of Tamar, 
but the eventual deaths of Amnon and Absalom, the inconsolable grief of David, a civil war, a kingdom ripped apart. But it's not just Donadab who's part of this village. It's also Tamar's cowardly brother Absalom, verse 20. Her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. The Holy Spirit, through the narrator, called what happened here rape. Absalom calls it being with. But then even worse, he tries to hush up his grieving sister. Enough of this crying out for justice. Quiet now. We're family. Just put the experience out of your mind. Now not only have her rights been violated and she's been treated like an object and thrown away, but the significance of what had been done to her was, was not even being validated. And his silencing of Tamar, Absalom describes that she as a person was in some way less than Amnon and his desires. And so he's going to try to manage the problem in the darkness rather than have it brought out into the light. And then there's David. Verse 21, we see the reaction that such evil ought to provoke. Verse 21, when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. Such anger was, of course, entirely appropriate. David would have become aware of how Amnon had used him, how he had orchestrated David's permission for Tamar to go to his house. He would have heard how, how Amnon had raped Tamar, had disposed of her like garbage, how he'd She'd been seen and heard running through the streets, her robe ripped, crying out for justice. The tragedy is that David, in his anger, does absolutely nothing. He remains passive in the evil of face of evil. He doesn't go to support Tamar. He doesn't confront Amnon. He doesn't banish Jonadab. He doesn't speak with Absalom. He is impotent and passive. His anger refuses fails to uh, result in action, and so is utterly useless anger. All these men in Tamar's life failed her. When it came to Tamar's abuse, it took a village, and it still takes a village. When we think of how to apply a passage like this, we need to see that it's not enough to just identify the obvious perpetrators, the Amnons, because the whole village has to be addressed. If we want to protect the Tamars in our world, in our lives, which we surely must, then we have to face up to our own capacities for collusion, for cover-up, for evil. So this passage really asks each one who comes to it, am I like one of these characters? Am I Amnon in, in any way abusing my power to prey on the weak and then seeking to conceal the evil? Do I use my power to serve others or to exploit others? Do, if I've done wrong, do I come clean or do I seek to cover up? Am I Amnon? Or am I Jonadab? Do I work the system, bending the rules, turning a blind eye because I see some benefit coming to me if I do so? Do I enable and excuse the, the evils of others through rationalization of some so-called greater good? Am I Jonadab? Or am I Absalom? Maybe of all the people in this story, it's Absalom that we as the church need to look at and then turn our gaze to a mirror and ask if that's us. Because in recent years, it's been demonstrated how common 
in many communities of faith has been silence on matters of abuse and the silencing and shaming of survivors of various forms of sexual trauma. So we have to ask ourselves, do we ever, like Absalom, try to hush those who have been abused because we think it might upset the apple cart? Do we prioritize peace and quiet over a biblical peace that may disrupt the status quo? Do we seek to manage the problem internally rather than allowing things to come out into the light? Are we Absalom? Or am I David? Am I David making a public show of righteous anger and outrage but failing to act on behalf of those who have been abused? Do I let fears of some kind of accusations of meddling prevent me from crying out for justice and fighting against evil? Am, am I David? When it comes to abuse, it still takes a village. And as we see here, there are many ways to be complicit in such a sinful and dysfunctional system. If we want to protect the Tamars of today, merely resolving not to be an Amnon is far too low a bar to set. We may not be an Amnon, but we have to ask if we're a Jonadab or an Absalom or a David. But of course, there is one other person in this story. What if you've known what it is to be a Tamar? What if you'd known what it is to say with Tamar, what, where am I to carry my shame? If that is any of you, and again, the statistics would suggest it is, and you've never told your story to anyone, I want to strongly encourage you to bring your story out of the darkness into the light. If you need any kind of help to think through how to do that, I'd only be too happy to help or to encourage you to speak to a trusted friend. In closing, I want to point you to the one who says, I, you can bring your shame to me. A one who came from this family of David, but who presents us with what the family of David here miserably failed to provide. Look with me at the one we'll call the victorious victim, as he's described in Isaiah 9, 6-7. For to us a child is born... To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Here's this glorious prophecy of Jesus that we rehearse and, and tell one another every Advent, every Christmas. But just consider his names here, that unlike the scheming Jonadab, Jesus is the wonderful counselor who exercises his wisdom only in the service of love. And unlike the impotent David, Jesus is the mighty God who establishes justice and righteousness. And unlike the love turns to hate Amnon, Jesus is the everlasting father whose love never ceases and who is utterly reliable. And unlike the cowardly keep the peace Absalom, Jesus is the prince of true priests, priests, who by bringing everything out of the darkness into the light, ushers in an unending kingdom of peace. Here is the kingdom predicted by Isaiah, 
but that has now, has now broken into our world through Jesus and is slowly but surely overcoming the darkness with light. And you know how Jesus ushered this kingdom in? By identifying with the Tamars of the world and becoming a victim. For him, a victim on a cross where he willingly took on all our guilt, all our shame, where he overcame our sin and death, and he proved himself the victorious victim by rising from the dead. And as a result, again in the words of Glenn Scriver, in the resurrected Jesus' kingdom, everything is different because in his kingdom, rulers serve and the powerful protect and the lowly are lifted and bodies are temples and sex is sacred and victims are honored. When those truths are violated in Christ's church, there could really be no greater evil because such actions strike at the very heart of what Jesus' kingdom is all about. I realize that if you've ever had to live through 2 Samuel 13 as a Tamar, especially if it's been in the context of a church, it can seem impossible to believe in Isaiah 9. The message of Isaiah 9 is that no matter who has let you down in the past, Jesus never will. He never will. This victorious victim wants you to know his goodness, his restorative power, his love, such that you can find healing from whatever has been done to you in the past. Or to put it slightly differently... The year before the publication of Rachel Den Hollander's book, she presented a paper, the annual meeting of the Evangelical Theological Society, and in that paper she said this, the cross of Jesus stands in stark opposition to the behavior of an abuser. The incarnation and at the cross Jesus sets aside his divine prerogatives, the strong becomes weak. God himself enters into human brokenness and accomplishes on behalf of mankind what humans neither deserve nor can accomplish by themselves. At the cross, God acts for others to overcome evil, to uphold justice, to free the enslaved and restore creation. God himself perfectly identifies with the victim because he himself has willingly subjected himself to injustice. The cross is the ultimate repudiation of the idea that power is to be wielded for the benefit and pleasure of those who possess it. In the cross, victims have the framework and foundation for beginning to properly define and understand concepts which were twisted, subverted, and manip manipulated during their abuse, and they begin to heal the damage that which was done. And may I suggest that this, too, takes a village, but a village of those who follow the victorious victim in order to help heal the damage that has been done. And may we here be that kind of village. Let's pray. Lord, for some of us, there is all sorts of pain in our heart right now because this passage has touched a nerve. It's identified something that we've been dealing with for perhaps years. And yet we hear here of one who is able to come and bring healing. 
For others of us, perhaps we are challenged about sinful patterns that we've been part of in the past as Amnons, as Jonadabs, as Absaloms, as Davids. And Lord, in our repentance, we pray that you would help us to know how to address that in a godly way. Thank you, Lord, that out of the darkness comes light because Jesus has brought light into this world. And may we know that light in our lives. Help us to be a village of light, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.